0: Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it is, uh, as Derek said, a a great pleasure to speak here in Carlisle uh, on St George's Day. Sir Walter Scott uh, married uh, Charlotte Carpenter in the Cathedral Uh, and he once wrote, there are few cities in England which have been the scene of more momentous and more interesting events than Carlisle. Uh, And he was referring, uh, of course, to Carlisle's position at the centre of some of the, uh, what shall we call them, tussles uh, between uh, Scotland and England in the early Middle Ages. They used to break out occasionally. Uh, and this city actually changed hands uh, three times in, uh, in that period. Uh, unfortunately for Scotland, it was a best of free contest. <laughs> uh, one of the great Scottish kings, David the uh, First, David died in Carlisle Castle. And our greatest king of all, Robert the Bruce, was actually excommunicated in this very cathedral. Uh, Every candle was extinguished to symbolise Bruce being cast out into the outer darkness. Now, I I don't anticipate any candles going out tonight. (laughs) Uh, Instead, uh, I'm going to reflect on the modern links uh, between Cumbria and Scotland, which for centuries uh, have been ties of culture, commerce, trade and travel and family uh, and friendship. And what I'm going to emphasize are two points. The first is that the the ties that bind the the nations of these islands will continue and flourish after Scotland becomes independent. You will remain Scotland's closest friends as well as our closest neighbours. And the second point I want to make is independence won't just be good for Scotland, it'll be good for all of the nations of these islands. It will create opportunities for cooperation and partnership Which will benefit the north of England probably more than anyone else. Now, Scotland's future is for the people who live and work in Scotland to determine. However, I understand that our constitutional debate is of great interest to many people here in Carlisle. Now, I I was struck by a speech made at Westminster a couple of months ago by Rory Stewart, the MP for Penrith and the Border, which had some links to the ideas in his two recent television programmes. He was urging opponents of Scottish independence to link arms along Hadrian's Wall in July, and he ended by saying that what matters is not the wall that divides us, but the human ties that bind us. Well, what I suggest that uh, Mr. Stewart should reflect on is a line from Julius Caesar. The fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves. See, the problem for the north of England is not an independent Scotland. It's Westminster MPs, like Mr. Stewart, who have failed to establish any sort of parity or a fair system which works for every part of this country. I want to give you an example on transport spending. A couple of years ago, the Institute of Public Policy for the Regions published a report called On the Wrong Track. It found that public spending on major transport infrastructure amounted to 2,700 pounds per head in London and 130 pounds per head in the northwest of England. I'll just repeat these figures. 2,700 pounds per head in London, 130 pounds per head in the northwest of England. That's 1 of the levels in London. Mind you, you can console yourself, the figure for the northeast of England was five pounds. Five pounds per head. So perhaps, In my estimation, more time should be spent on television programs which highlight the imbalance of spending on transport in different parts of the country and therefore illustrate how the Westminster model has manifestly failed the north of England. In any event, uh, the ties between Scotland and England have never depended on the existence of 650 MPs at Westminster. They're based instead on links of family and friendship. They're based on facts of geography, not acts of Parliament. Uh, and the reference uh, to the wall was irrelevant. There'll be no border posts along the M74, just as there are no border posts between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. The United Kingdom, we've just feted the President of Ireland, Michael Higgins, who's made a highly successful visit over the last uh, two weeks ago. Now when the Queen, i imagine the Queen spoke at the banquet in his honour at Windsor Castle, she pointed out, quote, There is today no closer working relationship for my government than that with Ireland. In 1949, the Westminster Parliament passed the Ireland Act and in that act, it it specifically states that Ireland is not to be regarded as a foreign country. So Scotland will not be a foreign country after independence any more than Ireland, Northern Ireland, England or Wales could ever be foreign countries. To any sensible person in Scotland. Scottish independence will not change many aspects of the day-to-day life in the countries within these islands. Carlisle would still have strong economic links with Scotland and as a senior United Kingdom government minister revealed to the Guardian, very much to the embarrassment of the no campaign just a few weeks ago, quote, of course there would be a currency union. So people would still live in Annan and work in Carlisle or live in Penriff and work in Lockerbie. Friends and family will continue to visit each other. We'll still watch many of the same television programmes. People from Scotland and England will still celebrate personal unions by getting married in Carlisle Cathedral like Sir Walter Scott or perhaps by going to Gretna instead. On Monday, there were gun salutes in Stirling and Edinburgh, Cardiff, Hillsborough and London to mark the Queen's birthday. That would continue since we'll continue to share a monarchy with the rest of the United Kingdom, just as we did as independent countries for a century before the act of political union of 1707, and just as 15 other Commonwealth countries do at the present moment. We have seen over the last two weeks how Australia and New Zealand have welcomed Prince William, Kate Middleton, and Prince George. And we would cooperate on many issues where we share common interests and concerns. You can see day to day examples of this in Carlisle City Council, Cumbria County Council work with Dumfries and Galloway uh, to agree management plans for the natural beauty of the Solway. You also work together on the Solway for Partnership, which is based in Dumfries and which considers issues such as fishing, energy, environmental protection. And there are upcoming Scottish Government announcements to promote research and science in Dumfries, which will be of huge interest to the northwest of England. There is a, already a British-Irish Council whose secretariat is based in, in Edinburgh. It has representatives of the Irish and UK governments, the three devolved administrations of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and the three crown, crown dependencies of Guernsey, Jersey and Isle of Man. At its last summit in Jersey, the Council discussed youth employment and joint initiatives and learning from each other's experience. That body will not look massively different with three independent states rather than two free independent states, two devolved nations and three crown dependencies. So a great deal will remain the same after Scottish independence, but some things will change and they will change for the better for Scotland certainly, but also in my submission for England. In particular, and most importantly of all, an independent Scotland will be an economic counterweight To London and the southeast of England. One of the the reasons that the the No Campaign is floundering at the present moment is their ridiculous argument that an independent Scotland would struggle economically. In fact, an independent Scotland would be the 14th wealthiest nation among the developed countries in the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Scotland has contributed more in taxes per person than the rest of the UK for every single one of the last 33 years. We have more universities in the world's top 200 per head of population than any other country on earth. We have huge expertise in engineering and life sciences, an astounding cultural heritage, immense energy and natural resources, and a skilled and inventive people. And that helps us when we think about these things to explain a very interesting paradox. At Westminster, and indeed in Scotland, eh, MPs uh, from the Unionist Party say that an independent Scotland would struggle economically. But up here in in the north of England, the people argue, some people, that the north of England would struggle because an independent Scotland would be so successful. Indeed, academic research from the University of Northumbria raises a potential concern that, quote, It is not difficult to imagine a resurgent Scotland posing a threat to economic development south of the border. Actually, the the real danger, the present danger, the danger we have at the present moment, for both Scotland and the regions of the UK lies with the current system. We're part of a, a United Kingdom which has become profoundly imbalanced economically. There's a strong consensus that the economy of this island has become overly dependent on London. David Cameron argued, before he became Prime Minister, that quote, an economy with such a narrow foundation for growth is fundamentally wasteful and unstable. Uh, The present UK government's business secretary, Vince Cable, recently called London, quote, a kind of giant suction machine draining the life out of the rest of the country, unquote. Now, I have to say, as First Minister of Scotland, I'm much more moderate in my views than Vince Cable. But he is clearly right that the attraction of capital and talent to London is now one of the defining features of the UK economy. Professor Tony Travers of the LSE has said, London is the dark star of the economy, inexorably sucking in resources, people and energy. Nobody quite knows how to control it. Now, let me be absolutely clear from my perspective. In my view, London is a great world city I admire it greatly. But there is an issue here, and one that I've spoken out about before, including in a recent speech in London itself. It's an issue not just for the northwest of England, but for every single part of these islands. Economic disparities between the, the different parts of the UK have grown hugely in recent decades. In fact, the UK has now the highest levels of regional inequality of any country in the European Union. And although the United Kingdom Government recognises the problems caused by these disparities, there's little evidence of any change whatsoever. Indeed, the disparities are accelerating. Last week, we had the latest figures for (coughs) house price changes. In London, they rose by 18%. In the northwest of England, they rose by 6%. Since 2007, London's economy has grown approximately twice as much as the rest of the UK. And growth again is (coughs) being driven in a familiar pattern by consumption rather than by investment, by a housing bubble, as opposed to the real economy. Now much of the (coughs) reason for the financial troubles of recent years is that the UK's model of growth was unsustainable. Income equality increased, regional imbalances grew, manufacturing capacity has been hollowed out. But it's all, as we go through this process, nothing whatsoever has been learned. We are seeing the start of a, another London housing bubble before other parts of the country are fully recovered from the recession. The devolution <coughs> and the onset of the, the Scottish Parliament in 1999 has helped to mitigate the effects of this imbalance for Scotland. We have developed a, an economic strategy which focuses on key growth sectors of the future, which recognizes the importance of equity of regional a cohesion. Our economic act- inactivity and unemployment rates are now lower than the rest of the UK. Our employment rate is higher. And when the Scottish Parliament was created we were the fifth wealthiest par- area of the UK out of 12. Now we are third behind only London and the southeast. But that's an average figure. What it conceals is the vast disparity between London and the rest of the country. And we don't have the economic levers we need over employment, over workplace regulation, over taxation. (coughs) We need these powers to transform the Scottish economy by sustainably and wisely investing in our vast but finite hydrocarbon reserves, by harnessing the renewable energy resources which will last forever, by investing in in childcare to unleash the full potential of all of our population, by boosting productivity and competitive advantage, by sharing the wealth properly Across all parts of our country, we need independence to use our natural and human resources for the well being of all of our people. But my contention tonight is that that process won't just benefit Scotland, it will also benefit the other nations of these islands. First, <clears throat> the approach that we are putting forward is fairer, more sustainable, more resilient than the one that's being pursued at Westminster. It is a better route, a safer route a sustainable route to long-term prosperity. And it will provide a a powerful example, an exemplar, for those who are looking for a a working model of how to change the current system. Secondly, (coughs) success for the Scottish economy is not a a zero-sum game. The successful Scotland, which we will certainly see, will become a new growth pole to the north, shifting the the center of economic gravity of these islands. It often seems as though power, wealth and talent flow downhill to the southeast, independent Scotland will cause a rebalancing of Britain, a northern light to resist the influence of Professor Travers's dark star. Now, the strategic plan of Cumbria's local economic partnership already highlights the connectivity of the M6 corridor as a major asset for you, a major selling point in promoting investment. It will become even more important in the future as one of the main links between England and Wales and a prosperous independent Scotland. I was quite taken by a description I saw recently by, by David Southward from Cumbria County Council, who spoke about making the most of Cumbria's geographical location. He said, If you were to spin a map of Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and England on your finger, then your finger would be under Cumbria. I I like that way of looking at things, (coughs) it sees these borderlands as hubs, uh, as the centre of trade between the the nations of these islands. The University of Central Lancashire has adopted a similar vision, it is developing the Irish Sea Rim project, building connections between the Isle of Man, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Wales, South West Scotland and the North West of England. That project will promote innovation and in transport, higher education and energy across an area which covers 26 higher education institutions and almost half a million businesses. It is potentially of significant benefit both to Cumbria uh, and to the southwest of Scotland. But that vision, <coughs> that vision of the, the borderlands as hubs requires transport connectivity to link Scotland and the north of England more effectively together. UK's current plans for high-speed rail for Scotland and for the North. Well, they certainly lack high ambition and they also lack speed. They may not reach Manchester till 2032 and Carlisle. Well, to quote Burns, I think the rocks will melt with the sun before they reach Carlisle. David Higgins, who's in charge of delivering the project has expressed his frustration at at the current timescale. Since 2007, rail travel has increased by 144% between London and Glasgow, by 191% between Manchester and Scotland, by 261% between Birmingham and Scotland. Demand for freight is also increasing, but the line capacity is very severely constrained. Now, it's interesting to to reflect on a little bit of history here. There is an assumption that high-speed rail has to start in the south and gradually very, very gradually ease its way north. But the first railway line to Carlisle didn't come from London, it came from Newcastle. In 1836, Carlisle Station was a a joint venture between the Lancaster and Carlisle Railway Company, which was building the line south, and the Caledonian Railway, which was building the line from Carlisle to join up with the pre-existing lines in central Scotland. We didn't have to wait for railways to be built from London, before we developed these necessary connections. And by the time high-speed rail first came to the UK when the Eurostar link was completed, the, the regions weren't served at all. There was no further development of the services beyond London. In fact, a report by the House of Commons Transport Select Committee pointed out the acquiescence of Members of Parliament to the Channel Tunnel Act of 1987 depended on the provision of regional services. Its view, its view, was that the regions have been cheated. And we've seen in the last 10 years that the, the major upgrade to the West Coast mainline focused on the southern parts of the line. We then missed the opportunity for faster services to the north because the UK government's procurement process for Intercity, the West Coast franchise, collapsed. That piece of incompetence cost us all 50 million pounds. At the moment, we may have to wait for refranchising in 2017 to see a significant improvement. So to summarise, <coughs> under Westminster control, high-speed rail won't come to Carlisle for decades, if at all. The West Coast line doesn't get upgraded to the north, uh, and the franchise process collapsed. The East Coast line has seen a, a consistent failure of operators, and when they do have a public operator that works, their answer is to change the franchise again. By comparison, I, I'm very pleased, in fact, I'm relieved to tell you that the two rail franchise procurement processes that we control in Scotland are proceeding well and on schedule. And we're keen to get on with making major improvements to connectivity. We're already working with the UK government to prepare joint plans for high-speed rail links between England and Scotland. Initial findings from this review are due in the summer. And we're taking the initiative within Scotland. Detailed planning is being undertaken for the high-speed services from Edinburgh and Glasgow, which will bring high-speed lines from England. The business case for that Edinburgh to Glasgow link will be sent to Scottish ministers in just a few weeks' time. My submission is an independent Scotland could do more. Rather than paying our portion of the borrowing costs for high-speed rail as we wait for decades for it to spread up from the south, we can use that money to build high-speed rail from the north instead. It's time to take some positive action. So I can confirm today the Scottish Government will build on the joint work that we're already undertaking with the UK Government. We'll establish a feasibility study to explore in detail the options for building high-speed rail from Scotland to England. In doing so, we work closely with our partners across the UK, but especially in the north of England. Of course, we can't determine the route until we undertake the feasibility study, but this is a statement of intent. And we know that high-speed rail, of course, isn't the be-all and end-all. We want to make early improvements in journey time between Scotland and the northwest of England, including Carlisle on the existing West Coast Main Line. So we're funding the development of a business case for investment at Carstairs to add capacity, crucially to add capacity, to improve reliability and to increase the speed of the line. And we are committed to advancing the, the regulatory changes which will ensure there's a fairer distribution of the benefits which makes such an investment sustainable on this line. I want to draw a brief comparison. In the north of Scotland at the present moment we're investing to reduce the time it takes to travel between Aberdeen and Inverness. We're doing that because we want to create a, a conurbation a of connectivity across the north of Scotland. In a similar way we could develop a conurbation of connectivity between Carlisle and the southwest of Scotland. Now that way, a prosperous Carlyle Cumbria will benefit South West Scotland, just as a prosperous Scotland will benefit the north of England. Now these rail projects could have the potential to bring benefits to us all, but they require an initiative, an impetus, which is much more likely to come from a Scottish Government whose population centres are within 100 miles of here, than from a Westminster Government based 300 miles away. The rail isn't the only opportunity for collaboration. I know that many of you have been keen to explore other areas of working together. And we saw an early and practical expression of that in Peebles just three weeks ago. Senior local authority members from Carlisle City, Cumbria, Northumberland, Scottish Borders, Dumfries and Galloway, developed a plan to take forward the shared economic opportunities, for example in enterprise and tourism as well as transport. They are due to meet again this autumn. It should be said that one of the aspects under discussion was a An extension of the the Borders Railway to Carlisle. It opens in Tweed Bank uh, next year. Uh, I think the correct time for the feasibility study will once we establish the success of that line to to Tweed Bank. Now these discussions in the Borderlands Initiative between the councils followed academic research which I mentioned earlier from the University of Northumbria. That was commissioned by the Association of North East Councils and indeed Cumbria. The Borderlands report recommended collaborative working across the local authorities on both sides of the border. Now, the practical cooperation which we are starting to see under Borderlands has quite rightly been taken forward primarily by local authorities. But Any independent Scottish Government will support it wholeheartedly. Now, this Government, if elected as the Government of an Independent Scotland, will work with the local authorities to establish a Borderlands Economic Forum, will nominate a lead minister, to work with that body. And I want to make a a further commitment, one which can take effect in 2014 rather than 2016. The Scottish Government is a national economic forum which meets twice a year. It brings together the government businesses, the third sector, the wider public sector, the trade unions, and of course, uh, the private sector. We know there's a fund of goodwill for cooperation between Scotland and the north of England. We also know and understand, of course, there are sensitivities, political sensitivities and some councils about initiatives taking place before September. So the first national economic forum, after the referendum, will focus on rebalancing the economy, including cooperation with the north of England. We'll invite representatives from local authorities and business organizations in the north of England to participate as a practical demonstration of cooperation and partnership between us a partnership which will strengthen further by an outward-looking, prosperous, and independent Scotland. Ladies and gentlemen, (coughs) I quoted uh, one of Scotland's greatest writers, Walter Scott, at the start of my speech, and I've also quoted Shakespeare and Burns once each. However, given that it is St. George's Day and the 450th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth, I want to close with another line from Shakespeare. That'll make it 2-1 for England. And I want to close with a line which is very relevant to to this location and indeed this speech. In Richard II, the Bishop of Carlisle was one of Richard's advisors, and there's a scene in which he said, wise men ne'er sit and wail their woes, but presently prevent the ways to wail. In other words, it's better to do something positive rather than complain, about what's happening to you. It's a very good motto. The Scottish Government doesn't want to lament the decisions being taken at Westminster. We want to use the powers of independence to transform our country, rather than mitigate other people's mistakes. We want to get on with building a a better Scotland, becoming a more fair and more prosperous country. That'll be good for Scotland's neighbours as well as good for Scotland. It will help to, to change the, the centre of economic gravity of these islands. And the initiatives I've referred to today, the high speed rail, the West Coast Mainline Improvements, the economic forum to concentrate on cross-border cooperation will benefit both Scotland and the north of England. They'll strengthen the links, the real links, the people links, between communities on both sides of the border. They'll demonstrate that the north of England has nothing to lose and much to gain from the establishment of a successful independent Scotland. So happy St. George's Day, because I look forward to the future of close collaboration between an independent Scotland and our closest neighbors. It's a partnership which will be good for Scotland, good for the north of England, and good for all of the nations of these islands. Thank you very much.